Welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. In today's episode, Ali Shirazi, a student of government and rhetoric at the University of Texas at Austin, interviews Professor Jennifer Murchia. They discuss Professor Murchia's recent book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor Murchia. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, about your book, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Uh, yeah, I'm a professor at Texas A&M in the Department of Communication. I've been there since 2003. Demagogue for President is my second single-authored book, and in it, I try to understand Trump's rhetorical strategies and how he uses language as a weapon, frankly, to avoid accountability and the impact that that has on our democratic process. For sure. That's truly fascinating. Do you mind me asking why the particular interest in, in Trump and his de- uh, demagoguery? Yeah, I wasn't um, initially interested in Trump, and I, I never thought I would study Donald Trump. I wrote a book about early American political theory and citizenship and why Americans chose to have a republic instead of a democracy and why we think we have a democracy when we don't. And a lot of that was about issues of rhetoric and, um, of course, political power. Um, And so there was this sort of shadowy figure of the demagogue that kind of haunted all of those conversations. And, you know, I quoted Hamilton, like everyone does, and, and some other people about it, but I didn't really get the chance to write something specifically about demagogues in that book. And I wanted to because the relationship between the people and their leaders, a demagogue is literally a leader of the people, is an important relationship. And when we critique a demagogue, usually it's because we don't actually trust the people to pick good leaders. And so I was really interested in the history of demagogues and who we accuse of being a demagogue and on what grounds and building off of um, the work of Patricia Roberts Miller and um, some other people. Uh, And when I was writing that essay, which I thought it would just be an essay, um, I wanted to write about ancient Greece. I wanted to write about the early American period. And then I wanted to write about today. And I wanted to write about um, like a new kind of demagogue, a demagogue of the spectacle or a post-rhetorical demagogue, somebody who used propaganda and social media and, you know, all of these strategies that we had been noticing that presidents used, starting with George W. Bush. But I couldn't find a good example because nobody was doing that really and nobody was accusing anyone of being a demagogue. Then when Donald Trump started his presidential campaign, he was doing those things and almost immediately uh, people started to accuse him of being a demagogue. And and so I started to pay attention to his campaign. And I still didn't think I was going to write a book about it, but um, I did think I'd finish this essay, you know. (laughs) So that's how I got in the Trump business. (laughs) Wow, that's truly interesting, especially as someone who studies government. Well, let's jump into some of the ideas uh, discussed in Demagogue for President. So one of the concepts you mentioned um, in the book is that Trump often appeals to American exceptionalism to unify supporters. But this appeal also often of exceptionalism also involves the demonization of an enemy. And we find usually that being China. Do you believe that there are two definitive sides to Trump's appeal? Um, With on the one hand, 
the unifying of Americans, and on the other hand, uh, the separating of us from a demonized other? Um, yeah, so in my book, I don't write too much about China because that wasn't really a part of the 2016 campaign. It was more about um, right. Muslim refugees or it was about um, illegal immigrants. But you're right, absolutely. It's, more recently, it's China. It's interesting because presidents use appeals to American exceptionalism routinely, and they have routinely. And typically, when we see presidents doing this, they use American exceptionalism as America's obligation to the rest of the world. But internally, usually, it's, it's meant as a way of urging American citizens to see America in a, a good light and also to motivate us you know, to, to the best versions of ourselves. Uh, but Trump does not use American exceptionalism in that way at all. Um, for Trump, American exceptionalism is America winning. Right. Full stop. <laughs> and, um, and that is a very, very different way of understanding American exceptionalism that obviously has nothing to do with obligation um, and everything to do with like benefit to uh, America. It's very selfish. Especially as you, you discussed in the book that, that exceptionalism doesn't necessarily mean the best, but rather just different. Yeah, so historians and political theorists, when they you know, talk about the history of American exceptionalism, not as a rhetorical figure or rhetorical appeal used by presidents, they sort of say, circumstantially, America is just different. You already mentioned um, other scholars such as uh, Patricia Robert, Roberts Miller, and Roberts Miller talks about the dem demagogues creating in-groups and out-groups. Do you think that Trump's appeal to American exceptionalism creates such an in-group of American nationalists, nationalists and an out-group of, say, in, I guess in this particular case in recent times, um, an evil uh, China or even of foreign nations? You know, he does do that, but he does that even within the United States. So it's not so much positioning American exceptionalism as all of America against everyone else, specifically China. For him, and Patricia Roberts Miller is absolutely right, he's all about in-groups and out-groups to increase polarization in the United States. And, you know, it's all about us versus them, but a lot of that is internal. And what we've seen in the 2020 election is Trump moving even those external arguments that he was making in 2016 and focusing almost exclusively on the internal enemy. In, in your book, you also talk about Trump's use of um, arguments and ad basilum which, uh, as you say, puts pressure on opponents, making it difficult to question demagogues or make arguments against them. Would you be able to give an example from Trump's rhetoric to explain how such an appeal could be so persuasive? Oh, yeah. So he uses ad baculum, threats of force and intimidation, routinely. And in fact, one way to understand all of Trump's rhetorical appeals is that their threats of force or intimidation is sort of widespread use of weaponized communication or weaponized rhetoric, which is authoritarian, obviously. Right. But, you know, he describes his campaign style as a counterpunch, right? So he describes it himself in terms of violence. And so, for example, um, I have a chapter where I explain how he threatens the press. And so he routinely says, I'm going to sue you, or he now says fake news. But at that time, he would say, you know, you're the enemy of the people. Right. He really changes the rules of the game of 
political reporting so that reporters can't even ask him questions without getting accused of being fake news or liars or whatever. And his, his fans, his followers cheer him on for that. It's definitely the politics of resentment where they think that the media has too much agenda setting power, they're corrupt, and that they're on the side of the opposition. It's anti-democratic, right. <laughs> but... But they don't care because he's attacking the people that they resent, right, that they're mad at. Um, and I was actually thinking about that this morning. On the left, when Donald Trump attacked Jeff Bezos from Amazon, he ended up getting him doxxed through the National Enquirer mm-hmm. and the relationship he had there. He threatened that he was going to increase the postal service rates for Amazon. And, you know, he did all of those things. And people on the left who are like, I hate billionaires and eat the rich, <laughs> were like, oh, well, you know, guess that guy had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I understand that it's maybe satisfying, right? To see someone who you resent attacked in this way. But you shouldn't have been focusing on Jeff Bezos. You should have been focusing on the fact that these were anti-democratic, authoritarian, weaponized communication strategies. And it's easy to disregard that when it's someone you don't care for or you think they have it coming. And so I think that's the dynamic that Trump really plays to, whether it's the left or the right. Right. And and it's important to note that like just because something happens to be going in your in your direction or in your favor, it's still, if anything, um, ever more important to uh, realize the processes that are leading to that. That's right. And there are very, very few people who think that way, who think about like, what is good for democracy? What is good for democratic stability above all? What prevents authoritarianism and democratic erosion? Do you, do you think that, and correct me if I, if, if I mispronunciate this, ad baculum? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, do you believe that um, the, that technique can also be used on or rather is an effective use on his supporters to prevent them from changing sides or showing disloyalty? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this morning he launched ad baculum attacks against um, Scaramucci, who used to be his communications director for 11 days, and Ben Sass, <laughs> who uh, recently criticized Trump sort of mildly. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about... Um, wielding his followers like a cudgel to intimidate, to force silence or compliance. Um, It's very aggressive, very authoritarian and very aggressive strategy. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to that. Like we're even here discussing this about a, you know, United States president, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think of Donald Trump as a dangerous demagogue, instead of as a president, a lot of what he does makes a lot more sense. Right. And I, I personally found it fascinating, the very differing um, definitions of demagogue. You know, it's a neutral word, but it isn't as we understand it. And so if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, they'll tell you that the first definition is someone who defends the interests of the people against the other parts of the state. So like a champion of the people's interests. And, and that's kind of heroic, really. And then the right. second definition is um, someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own gain. And that's definitely dangerous, villainous. And so I take my cue from, from Aristotle and his politics, where he writes about demagogues. What made a demagogue a demagogue was that they would go into the assembly 
and they would propose policy because anyone, any citizen could, and then they would get the assembly to accept the policy, but they wouldn't be accountable for enacting it. And so it's that idea of irresponsibility or unaccountability that I think separates a dangerous demagogue from a heroic demagogue. And I'm glad that we're able to have this discussion so that way anyone that listens in will be able to pose these critical thinking questions. Yeah, absolutely. That's the goal. Always critical thinking. So in the book, you also claim that uh, Trump is not a truth teller, even though he claims to be. He didn't risk his life to tell the truth or to help people. You suggest that Trump cares more about how people feel about him, his ethical appeal, than they do about the content of his speech or his logical appeal. Why is Trump's constant lack of truth not a deal breaker for so many people? Yeah, I think the best answer to this is the pervasive culture of distrust in the United States. Um, We're Mm -hmm. at a historic crisis of distrust of political institutions, of the media, of traditional leadership. Right. And Hannah Arendt talks about, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she talks about why is it that Germans didn't care when their leaders lied? And you know, she calls it a culture of gullibility and cynicism that says that everything our side says is true and everything their side says is a lie. And I think that that really captures for both parties in the United States, how it works. Uh, And that's a culture of polarization and distrust. And Trump did not cause it. (laughs) He capitalized on it, (laughs) right? Like he he took advantage of it, but it preexisted him. No, I agree. I think Trump wasn't the the cause, but rather um, a byproduct of these um, very like polarizing partisan sentiments. And and it's interesting because a very notable study that I was reading about was how positive um, partisan affect for an in-group and negative partisan affect for the out-group is more of a of a divisive. A metric than even race. Yeah, absolutely. They call it the negative partisanship model. And um, I think it's kind of the, the, the dominant model for understanding what's going to happen in 2020. People are voting as much against their opposition or who they think is the opposition in the party than they are voting for their person. Right. And that's interesting because I've personally worked in, in a lot of um, political spaces and we hear a lot of sayings like vote blue no matter who. Seeing as as that seems to be the case, how do you believe that President Trump's constant lack of truth relates to kind of his brazen attacks on, on uh, political correctness or, or PC culture? Yeah, it's really interesting because he claims to be a truth teller and he says, you know, I can say anything I want because political correctness is corruption and you know they're corrupt because they, you know, don't say anything they want. They use political correctness to hide the truth. So, you know, he positions himself as this fearless truth teller. Uh, at the same time, he, he tells very little truth. So he is constantly attacking, or at least he was in 2016. I think he, he does this less now, but constantly attacking political correctness. Uh, because it provides covering for him so that he can say whatever he wants. Right, yeah. And and interestingly enough, I think that uh, perfectly ties into the, the idea of uh, parallepsies. Yeah, that's a really interesting chapter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I loved it. It was, it was uh, really captivating. 
it's really interesting to me, uh, you know, to think about that. So paralipses is I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Um, and it's definitely one of Trump's favorite rhetorical figures. And he uses it to say two things at once. So you can't hold him accountable for whatever it is that he said. Right. Um, and so in that chapter that you're mentioning, I explain how Trump uses I'm not saying, I'm just saying to circulate and amplify uh, white nationalist propaganda and talking points. So he retweets them and then he says, what? You know, you retweet someone, someone and they turn out to be, you know, white supremacists. Who knew? And he says, you know, I, I didn't tweet it. I retweeted it. Right. You can't hold me accountable for it. Uh, but at the same time, the white nationalists who are celebrating, right, they're, they're targeting Trump <laughs> to tweet and retweet his their stuff. So they celebrate it every time he does it. And then they're trying to figure out, you know, is Trump really like us? Is he one of us? Uh, what, you know, what is Trump? You know, and they, and they decide, well, it almost doesn't matter if he's really a white supremacist because he's using our talking points. And so we can use him. And the whole time he's just like, I'm not saying I'm a white nationalist, but here's a bunch of white nationalist stuff. Yeah, no, as I was reading, I was, um... Like, these are all things that I've, I've like vaguely read or, or uh, remember coming across in the past, but to see it all string together um, was truly, um, was, was a great read. Thanks. I also warn people about that chapter. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it takes a turn for darkness um, around chapter yeah, nine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. And, and it almost brings about the question about the standard of I guess, accountability, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And Paralipses is absolutely the figure, uh, you know, that represents Trump trying to not be held accountable. I mean, he tells you right in the figure himself, you know, itself, that he knows he's using it and he's using it exactly that way so that you can't hold him accountable for it. Right. Uh, you mentioned ad hominem and uh, I truly was captivated also by the, um, the your, your notes and, and uh, discussion on um, Trump's use and, and uh, covering of the uh, 9-11 attacks and specifically how he um, made attacks against the reporter from, I believe it, it was the Washington Post, who um, said that there weren't any verified claims that there were any Muslims that were cheering on 9-11. And yet Trump goes against anyone that accuses him and, and uh, deflects their critiques or criticisms of him um, by attacking the the person themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and this is an infamous scene of Trump's in a rally and um, the reporter has a physical disability and um, right. Trump, you know, mocks him physically. Um, and so, of course, afterwards, Trump said that that wasn't what he was doing. He was just trying to show groveling or whatnot. But, but you're right, you know, attacking his person, and in this case, literally the person of the, mm -hmm. the opposition, instead of their argument, because Trump can't win on fact. Right. And I mean, that, that image is burned into my mind. I think I was like maybe 16 at the time when uh, I remember that coming up on, on TV and, and all over social media. And it was truly shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a delegitimizing strategy. It's a bullying strategy, right? And, and it makes it so that he's less of a person. Right. I, I forget the term that you use, but um, it's kind of similar to the idea of objectification. Yeah, reification. Um, right. Um, I truly found that very um, intriguing because I've never uh, myself come across the term before, but... Yeah. Yeah. People are objects for Trump. <laughs> right. Un unfortunately. 
Right. It, it's intriguing because often what he says is just straight out of his unfiltered mind. Um, and to see how he just so habitually uses these different, you know, rhetorical techniques and, and appeals. It's just bizarre. Um. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's, it's almost cognitive dissonance, like causing, right? Because you, you hear Trump and you're like, this guy is an idiot. And, you know, no, he's not a rhetorical genius. But then you read about how consistently he uses these same six strategies and how he uses them very effectively to get out of trouble, to position his opposition as enemies, and to consolidate his base, all of those things. And you're like, whoa, whoa. You actually yeah. have to look at it carefully. And he creates such a whirlwind of information at all times and controversy that it's difficult to examine what he's doing um, carefully. Seeing as as we talk about this, you know, Trump is is a master of, of using these these six approaches. It really does beg the question about kind of the quality, integrity, and kind of the standard of of rhetoric in the age of Trump and um, in you know U.S. American uh, political discourse. Um, you you argue that political accountability is necessary, and that without it, uh, political and rhetorical power can be abused. Um, does political accountability depend upon a, a specific type of proof, um, like logos, for example? Yeah, I mean, I would want them to be held accountable for all of it, <laughs> right? Like one of the things that sets Trump apart is that he is a master of wielding outrage. And outrage is incredibly destructive for a political community, but it's incredibly successful when the metrics for our public sphere are attention and engagement. Right? And so he's just constantly ratcheting up the outrage in the United States. And it's all to his benefit, all of it. Of course. Um, and it's, it's an emotional appeal, all right? <laughs> so, so I would think that, yes, we should be able to hold people accountable for their appeals, um, whether they are uh, logical appeals or emotional appeals or anything else. Do you have an idea of how we can keep... Um, Trump and those like him accountable? My goal is to explain how it works, <laughs> right? To show how it works, to show the mechanism, to show how he uses it and why he uses it, how it, it you know, get out of jail free card for him every time. Right. In the hope that people will decide for themselves whether they think it's good, you know, and I think that people should be empowered to think about it themselves. But what I've seen a little bit is that people who've read the book kind of enjoy like pointing out the fallacies. So, you know, I have cards on uh, Twitter that I, I use for all of the different figures and, and people copy them and um, they'll like to, especially paralipses or ad hominem or ad baculum or whatever, they'll be like, that's a back ad baculum and they'll um, <laughs> call people out for using them. And, you know, that's really awesome. I love that. Right. But, um, you know, I don't know if it has an effect, right? Like I, I think people probably learn to recognize them through seeing, you know, people deploy them. I don't know if the people who are using them stop using them. My fundamental belief, the solution to most problems is education. And I think once, and as your book uh, sets out to do, is to, to educate people about the use of these techniques. And I think just better education would probably lead to a more cohesive understanding of what we don't want to allow within our leaders. As an educator, as an academic, that's that has to be my goal. But what what other people do with it is 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 on them. <laughs> right. My goal is to educate, and you know, it might be used in other ways. But right, all we can hope is for the best.
Well, Professor Murcia, you've evidently done a lot of research and have tirelessly analyzed the rhetoric of President Trump. What do you believe are the overarching ramifications of, of Trump's rhetoric for American political discourse? The Trump era has really proved to me that my concerns over distrust and polarization and frustration were correct. Trump has made all of those things worse. Uh, it looks to me like the Democratic Party um, elected a kind of, or nominated, sorry, a kind of anti-Trump figure. I mean, Joe Biden seems to me to be of the older school presidential rhetoric. He's less interested in winning every outrage on social media. Right. He's not interested in that kind of engagement and attention. And, and so that's kind of inspiring to me a little bit. I think that the Democratic Party has rejected Trump's rhetoric. So we'll see moving forward what happens. I, I think it depends on, on what happens in this election. I wonder 10, 20 years looking back, will this have been just a four to five year exception to everything and then all goes back to how it was or uh, has this permanently affected us? Part of the thing about Trump is that he wasn't wrong about everything. I mean, Americans are frustrated and right. they have good, good reason to be frustrated. <laughs> the system isn't working for people and it is anti-democratic in a lot of ways. You know, so he wasn't wrong about that. You know, there's critiques that the left has been making um, about the political process for decades. Uh, and Trump took a lot of those same arguments, you know, the things that Bernie Sanders said in 2016 and, and in 2020, um, are very similar in some ways, you know, anti-establishment ways um, right. to what Trump was saying. And, and so there, there is a lot of dissatisfaction, um, and Trump was able to take advantage of that. Do you believe that American politics is uh, more demagogic now because of Trump? Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that Patricia Roberts Miller is correct when she says that demagogues emerge from demagogic cultures where argumentation is broken and the public sphere is, is wrecked and that Trump is just one among many, right? You know, he happens to be probably the most successful, right? but he, he like the demagogues before him, are part of their moment. Oh. Thank you so much. I, I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to discuss these topics with us today. Um, if you enjoyed what we talked about on today's podcast, I encourage you to dive in deeper and get a copy of Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump for Yourself. It's available on Amazon and Audible for our fellow audiobook listeners. Um, this truly has been a pleasure speaking with you, Professor Murcia. Um, thank you again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Research and writing and preparation for this interview were done by Ali Shirazi, Rylan Keniston, and Jamon Phillips. Do you mind me asking how to properly pronounce your, your last name? I don't mind at all, and no one can say it without coaching, so don't worry. Uh, it's Merchia. Merchia, okay. Yeah. Questions and topics for this interview were suggested by JoLynn Sai. Ben Pomerantz, Brett Glasscock, Yu Yi Lu, Jenny Ni, Ji Hao Chen, Tucker Britt, David Minton, and Yvonne Wang. With us, we have special guest professor Jen Mercy. Oh my god. 
<laughs> Merchia. <laughs> Merchia. Merchia. I I'm gonna like hone this in. Merchia. It's like chia seeds. Right. Cha 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 chia. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was produced by me, Mark Longacre, with the assistance of Will Burdett and Casey Boyle. In addition, this episode was assisted by the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. All opinions and ideas expressed in this podcast reflect the speakers alone and not the DRW or UT Austin. <laughs> <laughs>